Welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts, and this will be part four in our discussion of Oral Torah, proof of its legitimacy and necessity. Now, you may recall in part one, I discussed the approach that I would be taking within this discussion. I mentioned how I would utilize clearly presented deductive reasoning. I will state premises, clarify those premises with definition and expansion, and then deduce from those premises the undeniable fact that oral Torah is indispensable and appropriate to properly understanding biblical truths. All right? So we begin premise number one in part three. Premise number one is Christians do not know what Torah and oral Torah are. And we jumped into that in part three, and I'm now continuing we stopped at where we were about to define Torah. And if you recall, I paused part three because the definition of Torah that I'll be providing is relatively lengthy, somewhat. It's expansive. This is only a definition. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to expound Torah. Well, all I'm doing here is I'm defining the term Torah within the confines of this discussion. That is, in terms of what this discussion is talking about, what we're, what we're talking about here, this is what I will mean when I use the word Torah in the sense of the teachings of God, all right? So Torah defined, the teachings of God defined. And you may remember that the term Torah is simply a Hebrew word which literally means teachings or instructions. And this is with regard, what we'll be talking about now is with regard to defining that term within the context of the instructions of God. Now, I emphasize that this is my personal definition and that it may differ somewhat with what Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism defines as Torah. It may differ with what others within, for instance, Messianic Judaism define as Torah. This is my own personal definition. The way I define it in a, in a way that will allow you to understand the, the conversation we're now having regarding the necessity and legitimacy of oral Torah. All right? Okay. So, the actual Torah, or teachings of the eternal creator, is composed of the following. All right? First, it could be the literal Torah, meaning the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Deuter- excuse me, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right? It could also mean, number two, the entire Tanakh, or Older Testament. So the entire, what Christians irreverently call the Old Testament. And frankly, I, I say this often within the podcast, it really would be good for Christians to stop calling it Old Testament. Christian, the teachings of God are not old. It is very irreverent and disrespectful to call God's teachings old. They're eternal. They're every bit as relevant today as they were yesterday, as they were 2,000 years ago, as they were on the day of creation. It would be useful if you would use the term Tanakh. Tanakh is a term 
It's an acronym referring to the Torah, Nefaim, and Ketuvim. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings is a rough translation. The Torah, of course, is the teachings, first five, five books of Moses. The Nefaim refer, refer to the prophets, and the Ketuvim refer to the writings, Psalms, Kings, Chronicles, etc. So the term Tanakh is simply an, an acronym representing the entire Law, Prophets, and Writings, or Torah, Prophets, and Writings. It would be useful if you would please, Christian, begin referring to what you consider the Old Testament. It would be useful for you to start calling it the, the Tanakh and to stop being disrespectful of God's eternal teachings. All right? So again, the actual Torah is composed of the following. Number one, I mentioned the literal Torah, the five books of Moses. Number two, the entire Tanakh. Number three, now this is where we start getting into, into oral Torah, Agadah. Agadah, in general, Agadah is a collection of rabbinic discussions and les lessons that incorporates folklore, historical anecdotes, moral exhortations, and practical advice in various spheres from business to medicine. Okay, that's Agadah. Basically, it's non-legal stuff. Number four, it could also be composed, that is Torah, could also be composed of Hashkafa. What is Hashkafa? Hashkafa is a system of ideas which attempt to explain fundamental and essential concepts regarding the eternal creator and his creation. Such concepts include, but are not limited to, the following examples. Now these and other concepts are addressed by a brilliant teacher of Hashkafa, Rabbi Shimon Kessin, who includes in his Hashkafa definition, A. It can be answers to questions, that is, what can we know about the nature of God? Who and what is God? What can we know? What can we not know? B. It could also be answers to questions, what is the composition of all reality? What is reality made of? It could answer other questions. What type beings inhabit all reality and all creation, both material and spiritual? And what is the purpose of those beings? It could also answer the questions, why or for what reason did God create anything? What is the purpose of creation? It could also answer, what is mankind? Why was mankind created? What is the purpose of mankind? It could also answer, How does mankind go about accomplishing his purpose? What are the details by which this is done? And finally, what is the inner meaning of an individual's life? Other questions, for instance, What is evil? Where did evil come from? Etc. In other words, you get the picture. Hashkafa delves into very fundamental essential concepts regarding the Creator and His plan. And these questions often are on the minds of people. I mean, it's, there's probably a lot of people out there that have asked, why did God create stuff? What's the purpose of this? Why am I here? Why does evil exist? I mean, there's all of these questions that we all have at one time or another. Those questions are often addressed within Hashkafa. 
Number five among the actual, among the definitions of Torah, or the components of Torah, I guess is a better way to put this. These are the components of Torah, or the teachings of the eternal creator. Number five, Masar. Masar, okay, this is often defined as a subset of Hashkafa that I just mentioned, or perhaps even Agadah. It is a term used for didactic, that is educational or improving, Jewish ethical literature, which describes virtues and vices and the path towards perfection in a methodical way. Masar can mean correction and discusses how one can improve or correct themselves to be more pleasing to God and more effective in their divine service. It is often described as ethical or moral teachings and is very often included among the writings that are Agadar, that is the non-legal discussions of Torah. Number six, another component, Kabbalah. This is also defined as a subset of Hashkafa, or perhaps even Agadah. Kabbalah is teaching regarding the inner essence, the deeper intent, or the wisdom of Torah. It is often included, included among the writings that are Agadah. Now, contrary to common thought, there are different forms of Kabbalah, and much that abounds out there today is illegitimate New Age garbage, promoted by those who wish to profit from the current heightened interest in Kabbalah. Among the legitimate forms is theoretical Kabbalah, and it is the primary type referred to in this discussion. There are also other legitimate forms, such as meditative Kabbalah and the much more mystical, practical Kabbalah. But it is not my intent to refer to meditative or practical Kabbalah for the purposes of this discussion. Frankly, I avoid and have no interest in pursuing meditative and practical Kabbalah because of the very real spiritual dangers caused from dabbling in such extremely deep and dangerous spiritual practices. And finally, the seventh element or component of Torah is halakha or halakha. Now, it is distinctly different than Hashkafa or Agadah, okay? Halakha or Halakha is the collective body of religious laws for Jews, including biblical law, that is the 613 mitzvot or commandments, and later Talmudic and rabbinic law, as well as customs and traditions. This is what is commonly known as the legal or legalistic aspects of Torah. Take note, this is what is referred to when you hear, when you see the New Testament imply legalism or the traditions of men, etc. It is generally referring to this element of Torah. It is not referring to the entire Torah in general. It's referring to halakha. This is what is commonly known, again, as the legalistic aspects of Torah. Perhaps a better way to describe it is that halakha is the more technical components of Torah. Okay, It's the legal technicalities of Torah. That's what halakha is. All right, so that's the seven components of Torah. Very quickly, the literal Torah the entire Tanakh, Agadah, 
Hashkafa, Masar, Kabbalah, and Halakha. Okay? Now, I know that may seem confusing. <laughs> you can go back and listen to that, and, and you'll get a better understanding and be able to absorb it. But basically, the definition of Torah as presented in Scripture could be simplified as this. Number one, the written Torah. The written Torah is the Tanakh, which is sometimes referred to as Torah Shebalkhav, that is, Torah which is written, and which, of course, includes the five books of Moses. The Torah Shebalkhav. All right? That's a term that you'll hear sometimes rabbis say. And my, my speak, speaking of Hebrew is terrible, so I may present that wrong. But that's the written Torah. So Torah can be the written Torah, and secondly, the oral Torah, which is the subject, primary subject of this discussion. Oral Torah, which is sometimes referred to as the unwritten Torah, or as the Torah Sheba'al Pei, the Torah which is spoken. And it is composed of Halakha, which is the collective body of legal teachings or laws, some of which, if instituted by rabbinic decree, I consider to be nonsensical, elitist, and very burdensome. It represents the more technical aspect of Torah. And secondly, oral Torah can be, is Hashkafa and Agadah, non-legal teachings. Basically, anything that isn't Halakha is non-legal teachings and is Agadah. All right? It is from this aspect of oral Torah that I feel much truth can be found, especially perhaps Hashkafa. However, even then, discernment and common sense need to be applied, along with sincere prayers to God for divine guidance. As suggested above, this also includes Musar and Kabbalah. Now, Musar, the New Testament, for instance, is filled with Musar, which is basically ethical, moral teachings. That's what Musar is. It is oral Torah. That's oral Torah. Now, before you go off half-cocked about the term Kabbalah, hang on, we'll get into that more deeply. Because, to be honest with you, friend, the New Testament is also filled with Kabbalah. So, again, very quickly, I listed the seven components in detail, literal Torah, entire Tanakh, Agadah, Hashkafa, Musar, Kabbalah, and Halakha. Those are the seven components, as I define it, of Torah. And then I broke it down and condensed it into two components, the written Torah and the oral Torah. So basically, Torah is the written Torah, that which is written in your Bible, and the oral Torah, which includes the Halakha, the Hashkafa, Hashkafa, the Agadah, the Kabbalah, the Musar, things that are not written explicitly in the Bible, but which have been taught for thousands of years, okay? They were not written, but they were taught, explanations, and etc. And I'll get into even more depth as we proceed, all right? And this is important because people need to understand what Torah is, all right? So I'm, I'm trying to give you that understanding. I'm trying to uh, give you the knowledge so that you'll, un, you'll know what, when people say Torah, what they're referring to. 
They're not simply referring to the Bible. They're not referring to crazy legalistic things. They're referring to all of these. So, for instance, if you say that you reject the Torah, then you're actually saying that you reject the five books of Moses. You're actually saying that you reject the Tanakh, the Older Testament. Do you, Christian? No. I think most Christians out there will not, do not reject what they call the Old Testament. Well, if you say you reject Torah, you're saying you do reject it. Okay? So you need to understand what the definition of Torah is, because it includes that. The literal Torah, the entire meaning the five books of Moses, the entire Tanakh, Agadah, Hashkafa, Musar, Kabbalah, Halakha. So basically you have written Torah and oral Torah. Now on in the written material, in Oral Torah Part 1, you'll see this, what I just went through, it is on pages, beginning on page 14, it's 14, 15, and into 16. If you want to and you want to have something that you can refer to, if you look at the bottom of page 14 in the written material of Oral Torah Part 1, under the heading Torah Defined, that's what I just went through. And you'll have it at your fingertips. Okay? So, continuing. Halakha commonly comes to mind when oral Torah is mentioned to Christians. That's really what a lot of Christians think. When, when, when the term oral Torah is, is mentioned, most Christians automatically jump to the conclusion that's referring to legalistic stuff, which is what Halakha is. Okay? Therefore, Allow me to briefly explain the meaning of halakha in a bit more detail. I obtained this from the jufac.org website, if you wish further study, and have basically adapted this quick elaboration from that material. Okay? And I've done so in reduced format just for the purposes of clarification. So, also, no one within Judaism can claim that my definition here is false, since I'm using a Jewish website. Okay, so halakha, as defined by Rabbinic Judaism, or Akiva Judaism, comes from three sources. Number one, from the written Torah, which is commonly known as the mitzvot deraita. Now, that's, so in other words, you're talking about halakha from the written Torah, and, and the mitzvot deraita is defined in the next paragraph. And again, forgive me for my poor, tra- for my poor pronunciation of these terms. Again, it's in the written material. So, halakha means is from the written Torah. It should be noted that in this limited definition of Torah, it includes orator found within the Talmud and other foundational resources used by Akiva Judaism. In other words, Torah is not limited here to simply the first five books of Moses or the Tanakh. Number two, halakha. It can refer to laws instituted by the rabbis known as the mitzvot durabanan, which I'll define later, also known as durabonims. Okay? Now, these I generally almost totally reject. Basically, a durabanan is a rabbinic dictate. I personally do not adhere to the Akiva Judaism rabbis. I do not, look, I do not see them as authorities to be followed, all right? 
and a lot of halakha within Judaism is the Durabanance. A lot of it, possibly I would say most of it, is either rabbinic dictates or expansions by the rabbis on the actual commandments in Scripture expanded upon so greatly that they actually include rabbinic dictates within them. And finally, halakha can be number three, long-standing customs, which are often known as minhag, that sometimes vary among various Jewish groups. So halakha, again, as defined by Judaism, can be commandments from the written Torah, okay, and that includes, because see, in, in Judaism, written Torah to them includes the Talmud and other foundational books of rabbinic Judaism. So it can actually in, be, it kind of all smears together, just to be honest. And I know it sounds confusing because frankly it is. It really is. It smears together. There's so much halakha within or, uh, Orthodox and rabbinic Judaism. It gets to be crazy. So halakha can be from the written Torah, it can be from Talmud and other foundational books. It's laws that are instituted by the rabbis, known as the Rabbanans, and it can be minhag, that is customs and traditions, long-standing traditions that vary among Jewish groups. Okay, now I will expand upon commandments from the Torah versus commandments from the rabbi. Akiva Judaism, or Rabbinic Judaism, refers to halakha from any of these sources as mitzvot, that is commandments in singular, or mitzvah, or excuse me, as mitzvot, and that's plural, or mitzvah, mitzvah, singular, and it means commandments. The word mitzvah is also commonly used in a casual way to refer to any good deed. Because of this imprecise usage, Sophisticated halakhic discussions are careful to identify mitzvah as being mitzvah dureta, that's an Aramaic, an Aramaic word meaning from the Torah, or mitzvot durbanan, that's, an Aramaic, that's Aramaic for from the rabbis. In other words, the halakhic discussions usually identify the commandments or mitzvot as being either from the Torah, that is from the written Bible, or from the rabbis, okay? A mitzvah that arises from custom is referred to as a minhag, as I mentioned earlier, or a minhag. Judaism teaches that mitzvot from all three of these sources are binding. Did you get that? Akiva Judaism teaches that whether or not it's from the Bible, from the rabbis, or from customs, they are binding, they are obligatory though there are differences in the way they are applied. Now, a, a, a slight disclaimer here. You'll hear rabbis within Akiva Judaism or Rabbinic Judaism say, oh, no, they're not binding, they're not binding. It, it, you know, the Durbanans, the, the, the decrees of the rabbis, they're not binding. We don't say that. Uh, people, they do. They do. They, they use doublespeak. On the one hand, you'll hear rabbis, and, 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 it, and I will admit, it, it, it depends on the rabbi, okay? Some rabbis are more forceful in, in 
calling rabbinic decrees binding than are others. Some rabbis will openly say, hey, this is just a rabbinic opinion or rabbinic decree. It's not binding. If you don't keep it, that's fine. But by and large, the majority of rabbis, the vast majority of rabbis within rabbinic Judaism do, whether they admit it or not, consider the rabbinic decrees to be obligatory, to be binding, just as binding as what is written in the Holy Bible. Okay? You need to understand that. So again, rabbinic Judaism, Akiva Judaism teaches that mitzvot or commandments from all of the sources I just named are binding, though there are differences in the way that they are applied. Now, I personally differ with what I strongly believe to be illegitimate supreme authority given to rabbinic decrees, and consider that to be a major error of Judaism. The reason I firmly reject such authority is because it was not given to the rabbis by God. It was taken by the rabbis from God. Let me state that again. The reason I do not personally see rabbinic decrees Drabanans as being authoritative and as being obligatory, something that, that a person should abide by. The reason I reject that completely, I reject most almost all Drabanans, is because I reject the authority they give themselves. It is their authority was not given to the rabbis. God did not give the rabbis authority. The rabbis took the authority from God. The rabbis profoundly arrogant power grab implicitly and actually explicitly elevates the dictates of rabbis to be equal to anything commanded by the creator. Did you hear that? The rabbis, and this, this I won't go into it now, but this actually was something that began in the second century following the the second temple destruction actually began in the first century, the late first century. The rabbis created rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism did not exist in the first century. It did not exist during the times of the New Testament. It was created after the fall of Jerusalem. And a primary central thing they did, the rabbis that is, the Pharisees who created that new religion, a major thing they did was give themselves more power. It was an authoritarian power grab. It was an arrogant power grab that implicitly and actually does explicitly elevate their dictates, their decrees to be equal to anything commanded by the eternal creator. The rabbis literally granted to themselves power equal to that of the creator God it is for that reason I truly consider Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism to be a somewhat idolatrous faith system. The burdensome Rabbinic decrees, the mitzvot durabanans, and customs, the minhag, which I'll define later, are, in my opinion, precisely what Yeshua, or Jesus, was referring to when he criticized the rabbis of his day for, quote, binding heavy burdens close quote, upon the people. Those are the heavy burdens. See, the Pharisees were doing it then. 
but there were at least 27 other. There, one book I ref, uh, that I'm aware of lists 27 distinct sects of, sects of Judaism in the first century before the, temple, the second temple destruction. So the rabbis were giving themselves power then, but there were other groups within Judaism. But once the temple was destroyed, the rabbis, the Pharisees, consolidated the power because most of their enemies had been wiped out. They didn't exist anymore. The rabbis consolidated power and created their own basically dictatorial, dictatorial authoritarian tyranny. And they called it rabbinic Judaism, Akiva Judaism. That's where it comes from. It was a power grab. And they granted themselves literally divine power. Included among the rabbinic edicts or decrees, the mitzvot durbanan, sometimes simply called rabbanans, the rabbinic law set forth by an authorized rabbinic court, are what is termed takanah in the singular form or takanot in plural form. Okay, I'll use the term takanot. Takanot, that, that's a term that refers to those durbanans, those rabbinic decrees. Now, technically speaking, takanot, represent the positive rabbinic decrees or legislation, and gezerot or gezerot represent the negative or preventative rabbinic uh, legislative decrees. So you have positive and negative commandments, right, in the Bible. You also have positive and negative rabbinic dictates. The positive ones are takanot, the negative ones are gezerot. However, both the positive and the negative decrees are often referred to with the term takanot. For the purposes of this discussion, I will use the term takanot to refer to all such rabbinic decrees, to all such rabbanans, regardless of whether they are positive or, neg- or negative. Briefly stated, takanot, I'll define it here, takanot and gezerot. Takanot, which are sometimes referred to as the fences of Torah, consist of, first, takanot, positive rabbinic decrees commanding an activity or practice not directly based on Torah and promulgated to, to meet the needs of the times or circumstances. It is instituted to promote the common good or to foster spiritual development for those under its authority. They are sometimes used to correct an error that had developed over time. And the Gezerot are negative rabbinic decrees forbidding an activity or practice, lest it lead to a prohibited act itself, which would directly violate the actual Torah. There is nothing added to the actual Torah, according to them. It simply places what they call a protective fence, so to speak, around a Torah commandment in order to keep people from transgressing it. And I'll, ex- I'll explain this further later. So again, the Takanot and the Gezerot, Takanot's the positive decrees, and the Gezerot are negative de- decrees. Unfortunately, these rabbinic decrees, as well as the Minhag, are what many Christians and others mistakenly think is Torah, though they actually are not necessarily included in a legitimate de- definition of pure God-given Torah. Despite what 
Akiva Judaism teaches, rabbinic-originated decrees are not infallible and therefore should not be considered divine Torah. At least by me they're not. By them they are. Minhag, commonly known as customs, is treated as a category of mitzvot dormanin, that is, from the rabbis, mostly because it is clearly not dreta, that is, from the Torah. Minhag is generally not the sort of rule that is created by the same Sanhedrin-like reasoned decision-making, as are the takanot-type decrees. A minhag is a custom that developed for worthy religious reasons and continued long enough to become a binding religious practice. For example, the second extra day of holy of holidays was originally instituted as a gezerah, that is, remember, the, the gezerot were the negative commandments. It was originally instituted as a gezerah so that people outside of Israel, not certain of the day of a, of a holiday, would not accidentally violate the holiday's commandment. After the mathematical calendar was instituted and there was no doubt about the days, the added second day was not necessary. Now, I say that there are those who would debate about the calendar, and I agree with them. You have lunar calendar, you have calendars based on the Aviv, and I won't go into all that. I agree with them. But just for the purposes of this discussion, we'll say there's a mathematical calendar that's fixed, all right, for the purposes of this discussion. That's the calendar often used in Judaism, where you can go look on any Jewish calendar and you, you can see all the days of the holy days. But usually or often it will vary very slightly uh, from other calendars people use who seek to observe Torah, Okay. So again, that is a, an example of a minhag, all right? The second extra day that was added so that people outside of Israel would not accidentally hold the feast on the wrong day. The rabbis considered ending the practice eventually, but decided to continue it as a, minha, as a minhag, a custom, because the practice of observing the extra day had developed for worthy religious reasons and had become a custom. So this custom, over time, so many people were observing it, the rabbis decided we'll just let them keep doing it. So it's not obligatory, but it is a custom that is acceptable within Akiva Judaism. It is important to note that some rabbis of Judaism view these customs as a binding part of halakha. Remember halakha were the legalistic, the, the laws they, they consider them binding, just like a mitzvah or a commandment, just like a takanah or a gezerah, that is a positive or a negative rabbinic decree. I strongly differ with that. I do not see them as being binding at all. The word minhag is also used in a looser sense to indicate a community or an individual's customary way of doing some religious thing. For example, it may be the minhag or the minhag in one synagogue to stand while reciting a certain prayer, while in another synagogue it may be the minhag or custom to sit during that prayer. It may become an individual's minhag or custom to sit in a certain location in a synagogue or to walk to the synagogue in a certain way 
and under appropriate circumstances, these too may become minhag or customs. Even in this looser sense, these customs can become binding on the individual. It is generally recommended that a person follow his own personal or community minhag or customs as much as possible, even when visiting another community, unless that custom would cause the other community discomfort or embarrassment. In other words, uh, minhag or customs can be individual and can differ from one uh, Jew to another. All right. So now I know that section where I define Torah and where I discuss the commandments from the Torah versus the commandments from the rabbis was probably confusing to most Christians. And you're going to most likely have to go back through and listen to that again. Now, at this point, I think I'm going to pause this part four and I will pick up in part five where we begin to discuss, in my opinion, what is legitimate versus illegitimate oral Torah. So what we just covered in this part was basically a general accepted understanding of what is oral Torah. Now in part five, I'm going to give my own opinion of what I view as being legitimate oral Torah versus illegitimate oral Torah. That is, oral Torah that I consider to be useful and something people should focus, should learn or at least begin to study versus things which I consider to be burdensome and dangerous and not useful, illegitimate, that actually prevent, bear, present barriers to God and to God's truth. So, again, this is one you may... And, and I'm sorry, there's really no way to, <laughs> I, I try, I tried in my material here to, to simplify this rather complex discussion of Torah and definition of oral Torah, and I simplified it about as much as I could, to be honest. So what I would suggest you do, again, in the written material, Oral Torah Part 1, this is on pages 14, 15, 16 and 17, and it ends on page page 18. You can either print that out because it's in PDF format and just look at it or just listen to this part repeatedly. (laughs) And again, I know it's confusing. I'm sorry. I really am. Uh, But it's difficult to explain this to a typical Christian who has absolutely, and it's not their fault, but most Christians have absolutely zero experience with discussions regarding oral Torah, or for that matter, with even Torah in general. So I, I've simplified this as much as I could, and I'm, I'm sorry if it still seems complex. But go through it and listen to it, and hopefully you'll be able to get a bit of an understanding of what was discussed. And each of the elements that were discussed will be discussed again and brought up in the ver- in various ways as we continue through this discussion of oral Torah and proof of its legitimacy and necessity. So thank you again for listening, and I look forward to you joining me in part five of our discussion of oral Torah. 
Thank you and goodbye.